Welcome back to Conversations. I'm Bill Crystal, and I'm very pleased to have with me again Peter Thiel, an innovator, entrepreneur, businessman, thinker on, all, on many topics, uh, imaginative and unconventional thinker on politics, economics, society. So thank you, Peter, for Thanks taking for the time. Me, Bill. Good to have you. And we were just discussing before this that you're back pretty recently from China. This is now May of 2016 and you had interesting things to say about that, so I thought we'd just begin such a huge issue in terms of the international economy and the future of uh, the world politically and economically. Well, what struck you in China? Well, it's, uh, it's a combination of um, incredible determination, you know, incredible hard work on the part of people. I taught uh, a mini course at, at Tsinghua University, one of the elite universities in China, so it was incredible interest. And, Your book um, was a huge seller it in was, China, it, right? It sold uh, slightly, it did very well throughout the world, uh, the zero to one book, but uh, did uh, probably sold more copies in China than the rest of the world combined. Is so, that right? So wow. it was, uh, there's an incredible and in, 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 intense interest in, um, in technology, how to do new things. And then uh, at the same time, there's also this very palpable sense that um, the model that's worked so well for the last uh, 30, 35, 40 years of globalization, of um, growth through trade, uh, extensive growth, copying things, is reaching some kind of a natural limit. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think uh, there is this uh, very challenging transition China is going through in terms of uh, finding a new growth model. It's not clear everybody can become an entrepreneur or anything like that, uh, even though you have various uh, Communist Party slogans of mass entrepreneurship and things that sound slightly oxymoronic uh, in, that, in that sort of vein. So they have well, what did you find among especially the students? Confidence in the future? Worries about the future? The desire to change the system? Not? Well, I think uh, it's, it's always, there always are things you can talk about and you cannot talk about in, 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 that, in that sort of a place. Uh, but there's an incredible uh, drive to succeed. Um, and, then, and, then, um, and there's always a question, how does one interpret uh, interest in startups and entrepreneurship? And on the surface, it always seems to be uh, very optimistic, very ambitious, and then I think just beneath the surface, um, it often also goes to a lot of anxieties around how um, tracked careers, how um, working in a large state-owned enterprise or, or uh, in a sort of a government functionary isn't quite what it used to be or may not work as well in the next 20 or 30 years as it has in the last 20 or 30. So, uh, hmm. so I think, uh, I think um, you know, and I think, I think we often have had this with uh, these booms or bubbles where where um, uh, you know, on the surface, it's extreme optimism. The 90s, we had extreme optimism about the new economy in the US. Um, and then just beneath the surface, it was this sense that the old economy was no longer working and there was no future in the old economy. And, and so I, I've sort of been wondering if something like that is going on in China today as well. But this is, again, it's always hard to know. It's a you know, vast country, you know, 1.3 billion or more people. And so it's hard to really generalize uh, about, uh, about something like that from just talking to a few students in an elite university. But do the students think, and I guess I, what's your own judgment of this too, I mean, is it sort of, are they fascinated by a zero to one because they think, well, we could do that in China too, or is it, gee, they can do that in the U.S., but we can't do it in China? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting precisely because it's, um, that's sort of the cusp of the debate. And so the two kinds of critiques uh, my zero to one book uh, got would be, on the one hand, um, that, um, of course, China can innovate, and it's wrong for me to suggest otherwise, which I didn't really do, but there's sort of a sense that China gets linked with globalization. And so one critique is, um, yeah, we can innovate just as much as the West. And then the other critique of it is, 
Um, well, zero to one businesses are good for America and other countries. We don't need zero to one businesses. We can just copy things that work. And so you have these two diametrically opposed critiques. Uh, we don't need to do this, um, or um, we're already doing it. Um, and and I, that leads me to think that the truth is somewhere right in between, that uh, there is a sense that uh, they haven't needed to do it. They haven't needed to innovate for a long time. Uh, and this, is, of course, is the good part of globalization. Uh, you can copy things that work. If you're a very poor, very underdeveloped country, there's a lot of room for, for copying. Um, and then at some point- Huge increase in living standards. Huge increase in living standards. And at some point, you run out of things to copy. And, um, and there's a sense that this is what happened. This was the arc of Japan, sort of the, you know, the, the Asian exemplar in some ways, where starting with the Meiji Restoration in the 1870s, and then, you know, uh, and then th um, all the way through the, the 1970s, 1980s, uh, was incredibly dynamic. It was in, in, there were so many ways it wasn't a strictly capitalist model, but, uh, but it somehow just worked. And then you sort of hit a wall in the 80s where uh, they more or less caught up. There was nothing left to copy. And, uh, and then it, uh, it somehow failed to, to, to move beyond that. Um, and, then there's, you know, and then you get the question, when does China hit a wall like Japan? It's a very similar model, export-oriented, current account surpluses. Uh, when do they hit a wall? If you look at it on per capita GDP, you would say it's roughly where Japan was 1960. So you have maybe 20 years left mm. to go on the copying. So if you look at per capita GDP, you'd say you know, China's still, it's one-seventh, one-eighth of the US. Um, you know, Japan got up to about two-thirds or three-quarters before they hit the wall. So you have right. a long way to go. Um, and then if you look at it, but then if you look at it maybe from trade flows where in many goods, China's manufacturing half the stuff that get made, gets made in the world in that category, and you sort of wonder how much growth is there really left doing this? And uh, you end up with this question whether maybe this model worked really well for Japan when it was the first country doing it, and it works much less well for, for China um, at a much bigger scale. And so, uh, so maybe they're hitting this wall that Japan hit in the late 80s today in 2016. And one of those interesting things, I think this is in the book, and certainly in other things you've written in our previous conversation, I think we discussed this some, is people tend to muddy together, link to globalization and innovation, and I think you make the argument that they're quite different, actually. Yes. Well, I, um, I always uh, try to stress the difference, where uh, I uh, always draw globalization on an x-axis. It's copying things that work. It's going from one to end. It's horizontal, extensive growth. And then I uh, always draw technology or innovation on a y-axis, going from zero to one, intensive vertical progress doing new things. So it's doing new things versus uh, copying things that work. And there certainly is a sense that in a successful 21st century, uh, we want to have both uh, right. more globalization and more, uh, more technology. Um, and, uh, but, we can, um, but, then, um, but then there are probably some trade-offs in terms of where the stress gets placed. Uh, and if you look at the history of the last 200 years, we've had eras of technology and of globalization and of one or the other. The uh, 19th century was an era of both tremendous uh, globalization and tremendous technological progress from 1815, um, ending with the start of World War I in 1914, when globalization goes very much in reverse, technology continues at a breakneck pace. And then I would say, I would date 1971 when Kissinger goes to China as the, as the year where globalization begins again in earnest. And uh, we have had 40, 40 plus years now of breakneck globalization, but what I've argued is a relatively more limited uh, progress in technology, mostly centered on this narrow cone of progress around computers, software, internet, 
um, and not so much in many other areas of technology. And so the 20th century had a period of technology with less globalization and then a period, a more recent period of, um, of uh, globalization with more limited technology. It's reflected in some ways in the different ways we talk about our world. So in 1965, when you had technology but no globalization, you would have described the world geopolitically as uh, the first world and the third world. Right. The first world was that part that was technologically progressing. The third world was that part that was sort of permanently screwed up. Um, today, uh, the dichotomy would be between the developed and developing worlds, which is a um, sort of convergence, homogenization, globalization theory of history. The developing world is uh, converging with the developed world and becoming more and more alike. Um, and so this is a pro-globalization dichotomy, but at the same time, it's also an anti-technological dichotomy because when we say that uh, we living in the United States or Western Europe or Japan are living in the so-called developed world, we are saying um, implicitly that we're living in that part of the world where nothing new is going to happen, right. where things are done, finished, and exhausted. And I feel that that's always a little bit too pessimistic. So, um, so I think in theory, we should have both globalization and technology. In practice, we certainly have choices that we make. Um, you know, on, on an individual level, do we uh, work in ways that are more globalization-oriented, more uh, technology-oriented? It's possible that over the last 40 years, there were so many gains from globalization that it was natural for talented people in our societies to work in those um, in industries that were linked to globalization. Uh, and perhaps those gains are, you know, are a little bit more hard to come by now and maybe it makes sense to, to rebalance towards, uh, towards technology. If you think of it uh, ge uh, geographically within the U.S., you could say that New York City um, is the city that was, um, it's linked to finance. Finance is the industry that's linked to globalization um, simply because uh, it's about the mo global movement of capital. It's something that's very easy to move around the world. And so somehow the, uh, the way the economy and the future was centered on New York City from, say, 1982 to 2007, for that quarter century, was was the period when people uh, really believed in uh, globalization, and the, the the sort of strange shift from New York City to Silicon Valley. Um, I, th I see is this shift where maybe we can get more out of technology. It's harder to make progress on on globalization, and you know I, st I still spend some time in both in, in New York City and mostly right. in Silicon Valley, and it's always striking the, the sort of the extreme contrast, the sort of you know optimism in Silicon Valley, and then the sort of very deep pessimism that I feel always permeates New York, where there's this, this model that's, that's not quite working anymore. And so right. that's, that's what you see in New York City. And then I think, remarkably, I think that's what people also believe in China at this point, which again was, as a country, geared to this uh, to, to degree greater than perhaps anywhere else in the world. And how much of a, you know, to come back to New York City, that's so interesting, but, um, and I guess there's a real trade-off in terms of the regime and the political arrangements between the two, I mean, a, an arrangement that might work for, for just massive increases of globalization and prosperity may not work to encourage innovation. And if, if you're hitting the wall, so to speak, if, if the gains aren't coming seasonally anymore from globalization, you could have political crises and other things. Um, well, cer certainly, um, uh, uh, we have, um, let me, there's a number of things to say here. So cer certainly, uh, I think growth can happen through some combination of globalization and technology. And we always we, we will have problems politically if there's not enough growth. And so I think right. there's some level on which the combination of globalization and technology hasn't been delivering as many goods as it as But it, in China, as it I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, do you, do you 
How much of a crisis do they face? I mean, before we get back to us, in your um, judgment, oh, is it yeah. hard to tell? I, I think mean, I think with respect to China, I think that uh, globalization um, has been such an enormous driver. Uh, it's it seems to me hard to to reorient it towards uh, towards technology simply. Uh, that uh, there's so many you know you have the Foxconn factory where people are you know, manufacturing the iPhones, which again, I think more is globalization than than right. technology. 1.3 million people employed there, and you know it, maybe that keeps going, maybe it gets redirected in some other way. But it's uh, it's it's uh, the transition I think is 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 very far from trivial. It was a very big problem even in Japan, which you know arguably right. was globalization orientated, tried to shift towards um, more something more innovative and, and never quite uh, cracked cracked that open. So you're so China has big challenges ahead of ahead of it. It's you know I. The, the, the bullish case is always that that if you just look at per capita incomes, there's it would seem like there's still a tremendous room left for uh, for convergence. But uh, but my my own sense for it is that it's it's possible that we're we're later in the globalization game than people people think. There was the um, it was part of the uh, 2012 um, People's Congress was sort of a statement, and uh, the um, uh, I believe it was Li He, who's the, sort of the chief economic advisor to President Xi. Uh, included in the 2012 statement that um, the globalization tailwind that had helped China for 30 plus years was was abating, and that uh, you'd have to really think about how to reorient much of the economy, maybe towards internal consumption, maybe uh, towards innovation, but uh, but away from a lot of the things that are working, and then a lot of the power structures, of course, linked to things that are working, you know, subsidies to the state-owned enterprises that export goods and that employ a lot of people. And so there's uh, there's a question how easy it is to re reorient that. And I suppose that is where we presumably have some advantage as a free free country, we're a free society with, you know, where you can have a Silicon Valley in a way that I presumably is harder in a place like China. Uh, yes, it's always you know I, I always worry that we're not as free a country as as uh, would be uh, would be right. desirable, and that uh, that there are certainly with respect to innovation there are um, many areas where. Um, it's uh, effectively been outlawed, not right. not in the area of computers, which are still, I think, uh, quite unregulated on the whole, and where there has been a, been a lot of progress. Uh, but yeah, I think I think in the in the U.S. Um, there definitely are large elements of our economy that have been linked to this globalization story as well. And uh, if I you know, if I had to do sort of a long short version, I'd be I would try to be I'd be skeptical of the parts that are linked to globalization. I would. You know, if I was talking to a young person graduating from college, I would discourage them from working at a big money center bank in New York, or for uh, you know McKinsey or sort of the international global consulting firm, which is again a classic uh, globalization career. Uh, you know, Clinton Global Initiative. That sounds uh, that good, sounds yeah. very dated at this point. That's so 2005. Huh. You know, World Economic Forum. All these things sound have sort of a dated kind of a feel. This is the way the future used to be. It's not was the way the future 07, is. Was 08 the kind of the well, people look back and say that was the break point where we did have, and in a way, it was literally a globalization of credit, which then turned out to be yes. not as soundly based as people hoped, right? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the, the interpretation I would give of it, which was that uh, it was a peak on globalization, on um, the belief in the um, emerging markets. So you had the, one of the acronyms in the 2000s was the BRICS countries, Brazil, right. Russia, India, China. Um, and... Uh, and then it turned out that a, that a lot of it involved um, the investment of capital in these places that uh, was was misdirected, that there was a lot of corruption under the veneer of globalization, 
um, and uh, and maybe it was, wasn't going to work as simply as people people thought. And I, I would argue that you know, since 2008, it's not like it's the tide has really gone out. It's still been held together. Uh, you know, the global trade flows were growing t at two to three times the rate of GDP growth for 30 years before uh, 2008, and they've stayed roughly in line uh, mm. since then. So the tide hasn't really come out, but it's stopped, um, stopped advancing. But I think it's been held together much more by political will and much less by widespread belief. Uh, one miniature version of, of this uh, global project has been the European right. Union project, um, where um, you could say in 2007, 2008, people really believed it. And so a German saver would naturally buy Greek government bonds. Uh, you got a higher interest rate in Greece, and of course uh, it would eventually converge to a German rate because everything was going to converge. Uh, Post-2008, uh, there's a lot more skepticism. Uh, there would be no natural way that money would flow from northern to southern Europe today. Um, and so it's only to sort of keep the, the European uh, system balanced has required uh, massive uh, state interventions to flow, th flow the money to buy the bonds in southern Europe because um, the people themselves no longer believe it. And, uh, and so and I, I think there's sort of all these versions of it where it's, it's been held together by will. Um, and uh, and I, I wonder whether the tide is really going to start going out in the years ahead. Yeah, well, that's how the feeling, just looking at Europe and China in a different way. The political elites are, and I can, one can understand why they're doing this, and they're not necessarily wrong to do it in the case of Europe, I suppose, sort mm -hmm. of holding the thing together, but now it's fighting against the, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's well, holding well, something together that's already, from which the benefits have already been derived, and now you're beginning to see the downside, as opposed to let's all ride up, you know, as you say, you know, the 90s kind of, we're all just riding onto a yes. bright, happy future together, you know. Well, I think the elites are right in that the alternatives to globalization always seem really bad. Right. So, uh, you know, in Europe it was, you know, two world wars. And so um, even if we have a sclerotic, corrupt bureaucracy in Brussels, that right. seems better than what happened between 1914 and 1945 in Europe. And, and so I think there is always this, uh, this uh, negative worry that the alternatives to globalization are all bad. But, um, but I think, even, even though I think that's correct, that shouldn't um, blind us to the possibility that a lot of what goes under globalization may also have been bad. And so if it is just a way for um, you know, um, dictators in um, emerging market countries to abscond right. with money into Swiss bank accounts, or if it's, uh, if it's a way for um, terrorists to sort of freely travel throughout the world and use our global communications and global transportation networks, um, uh, it's a globalization of violence through terror, things like that. There are all sorts of forms of it that can be bad. So even though um, globalization ending is, would be an unmitigated disaster, um, uh, we, we have to, I think, we should be much, uh, much more, um, uh, we should try to draw much tighter distinctions between what forms of globalization have been good, which ones have been bad, and not just have this sort of this Panglossian World Economic Forum, Clinton Global Foundation, that uh, if it has the word global, it must uh, simply be good. Now that's, a, that's, that's interesting. And also, I guess one could take, a, take the position that it might have been good, mostly, for mm -hmm. X number of mm -hmm. years or decades, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. It was a reasonable, the standard of living of hundreds of millions, I suppose billions of people increased in China and India and parts of Central and Eastern Europe that had historically been mm -hmm. hugely unstable, became reasonably stable and better off. But So that something was good for 
four or five decades doesn't mean it's good for the, it doesn't mean that you can simply keep applying that formula for the next four or five decades. That seems to be very much the view of the European Union in a weird way, I suppose the Chinese, you know, the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party too, of, you yes. know, if we're just gonna keep doing what we were doing, but that's, the world yeah, doesn't quite work that way, and, presumably, you know. And it, it may be, it may even be somewhat good. So I, I tend to think if we had more trade agreements, this would be generally a good thing. Right. But um, the incremental value of the next down. trade agreement may not be as high as the ones we already have. And so, uh, so if we ask where are we going to really get the drivers to take our civilization to the next level in the decades ahead, uh, maybe it is not the same formula over and over again. So let's go to that because you've been an articulate proponent and very much a contrarian proponent. Though I think people are beginning to come around a bit to the uh, argument of the innovation slowdown and that, that not that it necessarily, that, that, yeah, that we've merged in our own minds, let's say globalization and innovation and everything's better than it was and then the computers became a stand-in for all kinds of innovation. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in many important areas, innovation is, has been less than it, we would have expected it to have been and is less than it could be. Is that, is that right? I mean, you know, cer certainly if we, uh, if we went back to say 1968 or you know, the late 60s, and uh, you asked where would people have thought the world would be by the year 2000, 2015, 2016. Um, it's fallen, you know, way short. If you, if you look at the Back to the Future movie, uh, the Back to the Future one was 1985. They went back in time 30 years, and things had changed quite a bit from 55 to 85. Right. There's still been a decent amount of changes. Uh, back to the Future 2 went from 85 to 2015. 30 years into the future, like it was about a year, a little under a year ago. And that was a world that was supposed to be radically different. And, um, and I think the, the actual day-to-day -day changes outside of computers would have been quite modest in those 30 years or even, I would argue, since the, since the 1970s. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so yeah, you can sort of rattle off these different areas, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, biotechnology, where there's been some progress, but it seems to have decelerated. Uh, um, space travel, transportation more generally, um, you know, all kinds of ideas people had in the 50s and 60s about, uh, you know, reforesting the deserts or underwater cities or all, all kinds of things like this that, uh, that at this point. New forms of energy. Yeah, fusion, right. uh, you know, new forms of nuclear power that at this point uh, all have this sort of retro future right. feel. It's like it's the future the way it used to be. Uh, Star Trek feels very dated. There's sort of these things feel feel very uh, dated in their in their optimism about how much uh, how much could be done and so uh, so yeah I do think the the you know there's always there always are different things that are going on there's you know there's acceleration in some places there's stagnation you know there's increasing inequality so you have sort of different themes but I I think that in a lot of these debates uh, I would say it's 70 percent is probably stagnation and that if we focus too much on inequality or acceleration uh, we're going to get a lot of the public policy debates wrong so, um, so if you focus too much on um, accelerations, uh, Professor McAfee at MIT, the second machine age, is this runaway technological progress, and then it's going to lead to more inequality, and so you need to deal, so it's, so it has, it's both this really good thing, has some problems, and then that sort of pushes you in a certain uh, set of policy directions of, of what to do. Or, um, or, you know, the even more optimistic ones are things like, um, things like, um, things like uh, Ray Kurzweil with the singularity is near, where we have this accelerating future, and all you need to do is sort of sit back in your chair, eat some popcorn, and watch the movie of the future unfold. 
and uh, this all, and then, and then the kinds of policy debates that we uh, we end in this in this accelerating world tend to be, I find, uh, sort of incredibly ethically charged, where uh, it always ends up being uh, good versus evil technology. And so the technology is so overpowering that uh, the main risks are that it's going to destroy us all. And so you have utopian forms and dystopian forms and nothing in between. And so you have, you know, uh, the worries in Silicon Valley about AI or, you know, do you really want to live forever uh, or is that just ethically, ethically bad? Whereas in the stagnation side, the antonym to good is not evil. Uh, the antonym is bad. Hmm. And the, the problem from uh, my perspective is not so much that we have evil technologies that are going to destroy the world, but that we have a lot of bad technologies and bad science that simply doesn't work. So where evil has more of this ethical right. thing and uh, bad has more the sense of not working. If there's, if there's an ethical moral version of it, it's, it's that people are lying about the science, they're lying about the technology, and they're saying that it's, uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's really incredible when uh, it's often not quite uh, living up to what it is. So, so I find myself much more in this, uh, that the stagnation is the general um, uh, dynamic, and it's reflected in the economic data where you know, median wages have been stagnant for 40 year plus years, uh, the younger generation has reduced expectations from their parents and sort of this very broad sort of social, cultural indicators that suggest that things feel, uh, they feel kind of stuck. And then you have a very different set of questions. What do you do about it? You know, what's gone wrong? How do we get out of it? How much of it is in our control? Are we just hitting natural limits? I mean, that would be a question, I suppose, right? Yeah, so I think, um, so I think uh, that to the, ex to the extent you see it as a, as a technological problem or a scientific problem, um, one approach has been that you're just um, hitting natural limits. This is a Tyler Cohen, um, sec, um, The Great Stagnation, um, a recent book by Robert Gordon, another economist, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And so it was this idea that there were some fairly simple inventions, the 19th, early 20th century, that maybe the rate of innovation peaked as far back as the late 19th century, right. where you had you know incredible numbers of breakthroughs. and uh, and. The, it's just the nature of the world, of the universe, that uh, it's much harder to find new things. The low-hanging fruit has been picked, and, um, and therefore we have to sort of resign ourselves to uh, far reduced expectations and uh, sort of a more austere um, future. I just read somewhere a quote in an article, which not the whole, it wasn't an argument, just a statement, you only, get, you only invent antibiotics once. You know, I mean, if you have massive gains in public health mm -hmm. by in, um, a huge breakthrough like that, where That's half your population isn't dying from infections, basically, and you know, public health disasters and and in infancy, yes. how many, you can't replicate that. Yes, right? so that's a, those are the those are the arguments on the the right. nature side. I'm a little bit more partial to the the culture side of this. That perhaps um, that uh, perhaps there never was any low hanging fruit. The fruit was always a at least intermediate height, and it right. looked always pretty high up. Yeah, they didn't think at the time that, hey, these are easy breakthroughs, these right? These are easy breakthroughs. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we have, a, we have a situation where, you know, one-third of the people at age 85 suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's, and you would, you would um, so if you could do something about that, that would probably be close to um, as big a deal as, as antibiotics. And, uh, and uh, we're just, we're sort of, but we're living in a world where people don't even expect that to happen anymore, I think. So what are the core problems there, do you think? I mean, what is the, the, 
education, regulation? I mean, is it government? Is it just the culture as a whole? Yeah, I, su I suspect this is, you know, all these questions why this is happening, why questions I think are always hard to answer. They're always a little bit overdetermined. Right. Uh, my, my sense is that to some extent it is all of the above. Uh, but um, but I, I think there is I think there is a big hysteresis part to this where you know there's a way in which success begets success and then failure begets failure where uh, you know where if, if you haven't had any major successes in a number of decades it does induce a certain amount of learned helplessness and then uh, and then it shifts uh, the the way science gets done or the way innovation gets done into the sort of more bureaucratic political structure where um, the, uh, the people who got the research grants are more the politicians than the scientists. Um, you're, you're rewarded for very small incremental progress, uh, not for trying to take risk. Uh, and so it, it's, it's led over time to more incrementalist, egalitarian, risk-averse um, approach, which I think has not worked all that well. And so that, how does one change that, apart from telling people that? It should take risks. I mean, it's it's, it's 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 not it's not clear, it's not clear how you change it on a cultural political level. Right. I I'm always focused on the sort of very modest uh, startup version, which doesn't actually work for everything. I don't. I think it's sort of like it's again it's a very imperfect solution. Uh, so I think you can um, you can convince a small number of people to start a new business or to do something new, um, convincing a much larger number of people to change things. Uh, Right. I think is, is sort of a much more challenging problem, and uh, and that's uh, and then you know this gets to all these questions about can you reform government research structures, right. can you reform NASA, can you reform the universities, can you reform uh, even large corporations that in many ways are um, not much better than the universities or the governments, maybe a little bit, but not as much as we we often like to think. And I suppose one way to think about it, and this is something you've thought a lot about, and is. Well, we do seem to have one area where we have had pretty massive breakthroughs, mm -hmm. bigger than anticipated. Mm -hmm. The one case maybe where Back to the Future, 2015 to mm -hmm. 85, really would is is a genuine quantum leap, so to speak, and, and that is computers mm -hmm. and related technologies, information, and so forth. And could one then just say, well, let's go back and look at what happened there and what the structures were there and the incentives were there and the uh, the culture was there, and why couldn't we then Mutatis, mutandis, you know, try yes. to make that more prevalent in other areas. I mean, yes. that would be sort of a simple, well, that, a that, simple that, but minded but reasonable approach. Yeah, that would certainly be my naive intuition. So it was relatively unregulated, uh, which again might be harder to do in energy or medicine or some of these other right. areas. Um, it was, there were parts of it that were not that capital intensive. So you could get started with relatively small amounts of capital, and there's a question. You know, is that true? Of, are there areas of science where that's true, or are there places where, if you need to have, you know, fifty million dollars to test a new experimental design for a nuclear reactor, does that necessarily become this deeply political process where you're at risk of the money going to precisely the wrong people every single time? Right. Um, so uh, it, was, it was lower capital intensity. There was um, uh, there was um, uh, there was um, um, it was less regulated. Uh, and then I also think there's been this history of success where over time you've attracted uh, very talented people who, uh, who believe they can do things. And, uh, and one shouldn't understate, understate uh, how much that sort of belief uh, is, is, is effectual. Um, you know, the, you know one, of my, one of my friends uh, was um, uh, years ago was looking to join a big biotech company. And it was well, you know, we, and sort of the, the pitch to 
um, people coming out of with PhDs coming out of graduate school was that we have a better softball team than the other biotech companies because you know whether or not you discover something is so random, so unpredictable that you know the only thing we can sort of control about your work environment is to tell you that you're going to have a better softball team. And that's why you should you should join our our firm. And so there is there's something around a lot of these areas where um, it felt that people were too much of a small cog in a giant machine, very hard to actually right. impact things, and there was sort of less of a sense of human agency. So I think that's that's what we always have to come back to is how do we how do we come back to a real a real sense of agency? It does seem like the safety and environmental regulations just are so massive, and others I'm sure too, are so massive in the medical areas, the energy areas, transportation, and then just yeah. the political, you know, obstacles, the rent seeking, and the current, you know, the people who currently occupy things, making it hard to make progress. I mean, which I guess didn't happen. Or of course, after the fact, whatever, as you say, everything's overdetermined, right? You probably one could have thought in 1985 that. It's not like there was no one in the computer or information technology field, and they were presumably interested in blocking new entrants, but somehow they, it didn't work that way. Yeah, I don't, I, it's a complicated history. It would be interesting you know, to, we, yeah. had, you know, we had the thalidomide disaster with right. the FDA, so there's specific things you can, you can point to that went very wrong. Um, but yeah, I think today you would not get the polio vaccine approved. You know, when it was first, uh, when it was first used, they dosed it wrong, and I think they gave 10 or 15 people got polio accidentally. And, and so today, that would probably right. put, uh, slow it down for another 20 years or so, something like that. So, so I do wonder whether whether we've become um, whether we've become too risk averse in, in, in various ways. Uh, but you know, even even this concept of risk is a very strange concept. If you if you do a Google, one of the things you can do on Google is search for words and the frequency with which they occur in books over time. If you look at the word risk um, over the last 200 years, from 1800 to 2000. It's sort of a very infrequent word, very rare until about 1970. Is that and then right? It, and oh. then it goes up at an incredibly steep curve, um, um, and it becomes sort of this much more common in titles, how to manage risk, how to take right. risk, and um, and uh, and so the 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 sort of the, the the thought I've been wondering about is whether a lot of talk about risk is actually even counterproductive to risk. That uh, you know, if if you have a risk that if your kids are left unsupervised the playground that they'll be kidnapped, or if you have a risk that this can go wrong or that can go wrong, or a risk that uh, somebody's going to die uh, from from some new medical treatment, um, that risk is actually this word that's uh, used to discourage people from from doing anything, and and it's more and more frequent occurrence is is a symptom of a society in which less and less good risk taking is actually taking place. A friend of mine who's on the board of a financial institution says. They spend more time at their, and I'm not sure this is bad, incidentally, but I'm just reporting this. They spend more time at their board meetings discussing the management of risk than actually making money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's minimizing the downside. Yes. And it's not a stupid thing to be worried about, obviously, yes. after, especially after 2007 and eight. But at some point, you, you sort of, there's a bit of a, you're spending more time on the insurance to ensure that there's no disaster from the products that you're making than the products that you're making, right? Yes. And I think diversification, you've written about this some, right? The, the kind of degree to which venture capital is, uh, people think of in terms of diversifying instead of... Yeah, the, there's all these, all these ways where I, I wonder whether the focus on the sort of processes of risk minimization distracts you from the substance of ideas, of figuring things out, of, of, of doing new things. Um, and, um, 
And so, yeah, so I think definitely, um, definitely something, something like that seems to, seems to have been very much at work. And I think that uh, one, of, one of the things that's true about risk is that it's sort of this very probabilistic way of thinking about the right. future, where um, uh, the future is dominated by chance, by fortune, and that that's sort of this all-powerful force that dominates everything. And, um, and I think it's, you know, one of the questions that I think is very unclear is whether this is, is this in fact a deep truth about the universe, or is it more um, um, about the abdication of our responsibilities? And so, as a venture capitalist, I'm always tempted to, um, the temptation is always, you look at a company, you say, don't really know if it's going to work or not, uh, I'm just going to invest a small amount, see what happens, and the temptation is to treat all these companies as lottery tickets. Right. But once you treat them as lottery tickets, I found you've somehow psyched yourself into losing because um, you've already psyched yourself into writing too many checks a little bit too quickly, and, um, and you're not actually making a statement about um, the inherent chanciness of the universe. You're actually making much more statement about your own laziness and your own unwillingness to try to really think things through. And so I, I do wonder whether there's something like that that's... Uh, that gets obfuscated by by this talk about risk, where it always sounds like it's a statement about the uh, the larger world, um, but it may really be more a statement about the failure of our ability to, to think things through, um, you know, and and maybe it is hard to precisely model these things out or or something like that. Um, in the case of in the case of startups um, and uh, and uh, very innovative businesses, it's always quite unclear to me how you even talk about risk or probability. And, uh, and so you can, you can talk about it if you can do an experiment many times and see what happens over and over again. So you did high frequency trading on right. Wall Street. That has a probabilistic character where you can probably model the risks very, very precisely. But if you're investing in a one-of-a-kind company, um, I don't even know how you'd go about measuring what the risks are, how you would quantify it. And, uh, and, and uh, if you have a sample size of one, standard deviation is infinite. And so, in theory, uh, you can't say anything about the risk. You know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook over again um, a thousand times, how often would it work? We don't get to run that experiment. Right. You know, and, and, so, um, and so somehow, risk-orientated processes, um, they make sense in a context of large N. So they, insurance is a context of large N. We right. have millions of people driving cars, so many have accidents, we can sort of model it out, or life insurance policies, actuarial science. These are all sort of large N sciences. Uh, but I think there are a lot of very important things that are small N, or even N equals one, or it's a very small number. And, uh, and if we're too beholden to these risk models, um, I think we just don't do those kinds of things, and they may be very important. Yeah, and the large N things, the insurance schemes, are important for the maintaining the stability of society and, you know, taking care of people who, uh, who are affected by bad luck and bad circumstances, but it doesn't get you, it doesn't, you can have a perfectly insured, right, a perfectly running insurance scheme, so to speak, right. and never have any progress, I guess is the simple minor way yeah, to put I, well, it. I or, mean, or the even more extreme way I would put it is if you had a perfectly running insurance scheme, it would probably collapse under its own weight eventually. And, uh, and so if we have, if you think of our education system as largely an insurance policy. The universities are largely this insurance policy for upper middle class parents who are scared that their kids are going to fall through the ever bigger cracks in our society. Um, it can sort of work, but are we really going to have a future in which everybody's insured? And isn't that a recipe for disaster over time where nothing... So, so the welfare state is a reasonable 
supplement to a growth to a growth economy. But it can't but, work as as the be all and end all for everybody. Yeah, that's interesting. And and, it's, and I think in the same way, um, a super low risk thing. There are parts of it where it can work, but it it, uh, it probably can't work um, universally. And I don't think it can work remotely as extensively as it as it has been done. You know, I was you know the ways I was guilty of this. I went to you know, I went to law school. It was sort of the low risk, seemingly low risk thing to do. Um, uh, from undergraduate in the late 80s, early 90s when I went to law school, and it was this fairly low-risk way to get sort of a upper-middle-class career in, a, in right. a big law firm. And um, and in retrospect, I think it, it's turned out to be quite high risk for a lot of the people who did it because there were far too many people who did it. Um, you know, it worked well for a few years, and then, then a lot of things just tend, tend to go wrong, even for the people who come out of these very successful, attract uh, kind of places. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to date this maybe in you know, 1965 or 1970, if you're graduating from college, there was actually a way that um, you could do a low-risk, very successful career. So few people were doing it that, you know, if you, and there was a way you could sort of arbitrage this risk successfully. Um, don't think that's been working terribly well. I think that's been working less and less well for the last uh, 30, 40 years, even as it's been understood better and better. So... Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, people forget, and you know much more about this than I do, but the 07-08 crash, the instruments that are generally thought to have contributed to the crash, at least, and to have gotten out of control, and so that people didn't know what they were holding, and one thing led to another, the kind of mm -hmm. knock-on effects, were precisely supposed to be lessening risk. Yes. It wasn't quite right that many people in Wall Street thought, hey, let's make big, let's gamble. Yes. Some did, and, and there were, but really it was, it was the opposite. It was if we can spread, you know, holding one mortgage is a big gamble. Holding one one-hundredth of a hundredth mortgage is, is safer because, you know, three of them will go under, but of course you have the other 97. Yes. And then it turned out that, guess what? The whole thing is rickety, is more rickety in a way than the very old-fashioned community bank holding, you know, the local mortgages, right? I mean... It it well, it's it it, it was yeah. So yeah, I would say I would say it turned out to be more rickety because people thought it was too safe. Yeah. So um, in theory, diversified portfolios would be somewhat safer. But if everyone thinks they're incredibly safe, then you might leverage those diversified yeah, portfolios up a great deal more than you otherwise would, and you would take risks that community bank would would never have taken. That does seem to be somehow a metaphor more broadly for our politics and society. I would say you know the 07. The crash in a way, you know what I mean? The um, sure, I mean it's the it's the uh, it's the uh, sort of like the it's, it's sort of probabilistic. What right. I think of this as this probabilistic kind of a thinking um, has infected so many things. And the you know the the, the very strange uh, version in politics is the way that poll taking has become so um, so That's unbelievably dominant. Where right. um, uh, and you know it's 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 like you can so, and you can model these sort of statistical aggregates of people probabilistically, as you get to 51%, you only need 53%, which is where, you know, Romney's 47% comment came from. It was, you know, I need 53, the other side needs 53, don't need any more. And, and then there's sort of just this probabilistic science of, um, of, of um, getting at that. It has had a certain amount of power. We shouldn't deny that it's had, had a great deal of power. And then at the end of the day, it, it has some very severe limits where, you know, if everyone's you know, if everyone, um, if all the pol politicians are looking at the same polls, right. you know, we're just, um, you know, we're just really electing Nate Silver as president or something like that, which is a sort of a strange change in constitutional priorities. And everyone's micro-targeting and 
And then, as happened this year in 2016, on the Republican side, at least, uh, a guy blew through who did no micro-targeting, right? I mean, everyone else was picking their lane to run in. I've always, you know, so struck by this. And, you know, what, the, the word someone mentioned lanes to me recently, and I hadn't heard the term in about a month, but, it, but early in the primary process in late 2015, yes. early 2016, that was all the talk among political pundits. And it wasn't stupid. I mean, you know, there's the conservative lane, the evangelical lane, the moderate lane, the this lane, governor lane. And, it turned out the one guy who ignored, seems to have ignored all that, Trump, and just decided I've got a message and I'm not right now leading, but I can be leading and I can go up uh, from 25% to 35% to 45% to 55%, sort of did that. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of somehow seems similar to yes. uh, whatever yes, his I, virtues and limitations, but I mean, to someone who just didn't accept the kind of, I'm going to diversify my political right. effort, you know? Right. Or narrowly target my political. Yeah, we're still too, I think we're still too close to 2016 to really coherently analyze. Totally, it. I'm totally. sympathetic to that idea. On the other hand, um, you know, for um, you know uh, all the ways that Trump gets described as this sort of um, you know incredibly independent uh, uh, kind of a um, uh, um, non-politician, uh, it's still very striking how all the speeches just get started with recitations of polls. Right. And um, and so it's again. Um, but and that's so, more of a snowball thing, don't you think? Kind of a, how do you say that? What the yeah. term or, or businesses, front maybe maybe getting maybe, people yes. to, it's legitimizing himself by, hey, I'm winning, and then other and, people want to be. And so, again, maybe it's a, another commentary on how beholden we are to polls. And so, if you're the politician or the aspiring president who talks more about polls than anybody else, helps that's strangely advantageous. It's crazy. Which yeah, seems, yeah. again, like very, a very odd, but somewhat true statement. But in a democracy, people want to be on the winning side. And so I, I think he had a real instinct on that, too, that there's a sort of way in which you, you know, you keep doubling down, so to speak, and people want to be with the winner, the winner you know. Yes. Well, it... it I mean, who knows it, what it, will happen, but... Well, again, it, these things can work in certain contexts um, for a while. You know, you can be winning as long as you're winning. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but uh, but there, are, there are, I suspect, all these other contexts where this, this sort of probabilistic approach, you know, has not been has not been terribly helpful. It's, uh, and it, you know, politics, at least you can still, you can just do surveys. It's, right. it, it's sort of somehow related. Um, if, you're, if, you're talking about, um, if you're talking about starting a business and saying, you know, we're going to just um, do this random walk. We're going to do A-B testing of different types of products and see what people want. We're going to have no opinions of our own and just uh, um, do all this sort of uh, testing of customers. The problem is the search space is just way too big. There are way too many things you can do. You don't have enough time to go through this sort of um, this sort of statistical surveying and, and, and feedback mechanism. And um, and you know a lot of the things that have worked the best have been sort of paradoxically not so uh, probabilistically beholden. Right. If you if you look at uh, uh, Steve Jobs, Apple, where it was it was. Um, you know, the, you have something like the Isaacson uh, book on Steve Jobs, where it sort of portrays him as this tyrannical boss who just yells at people all the time. And um, even if all of that's true, it doesn't um, it doesn't seem to me to get at, you know, why did it work at all? Why was right. it, what, why did it inspire people? And I think it was because there was you know there was a plan. You're going to you know execute against it, and um, and you could sort of pull off some some really incredible things that you could never do if you just did everything through this sort of um, instantaneous uh, uh, feedback from, from, from different kinds of things. So yeah, I think complex planning, complex coordination, these are the kinds of things that uh, it's gotten very hard to do in, uh, in this sort of probabilistic society. If, you have a, if I describe to you a complicated plan um, in a technological 
context you think of as like a Rube Goldberg contraption. It's just not going to work. Something's going to break because we think of every step as probabilistic. If we think of the steps as more deterministic, it's just you just have to get the different steps to work, and um, and yeah, you know you can um, you can actually you can have a Manhattan Project. There's no reason that you can't do this. There's no reason even the government can't do this. It actually did in the 1940s, and you could you could you could send a man to the moon with Apollo, um, and you certainly should be able to do a a, um, a website for uh, right. for uh, for the uh, Affordable Care Act, since uh, that's demonstrably a lesser, demonstrably inferior technology to Apollo or Manhattan. And I suppose on the business side, if you surveyed, polled ahead of time, I mean, this has been famously sort of said about Starbucks, I think it's right, you want to pay two or three times as much for a cup of coffee that may not even taste better, really, than the coffee you get in your diner, kind of a bitter European taste or whatever. I mean, people would have said no, presumably, or in any case, it wasn't clear there was like huge incipient demand or whatever term the economists would use, you know, un 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 unmet demand for that. And I'm not sure, even if one polled and 10 years ago, you'd like to have a little phone in your pocket that you could do this, this, and this. People would, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's kind of, you know. And um, there is a way in which all that way of thinking about economics does seem lim self-limiting and misleading in some ways. Well, it's, 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 I'm always, it's always this question whether it's that good to just always be looking at the people around you right. and getting feedback from them in, in different ways. There's, you know, this very strange aspect in Silicon Valley where so many of the of the uh, very successful entrepreneurs and innovators seem to be suffering from a mild form of Asperger's or something like this. And I, I always wonder whether this needs to be turned around into a, a critique of our society, right. where if you don't suffer from Asperger's, you get too distracted by the people around you. Um, they, they tell you things, you listen to them, and somehow the wisdom of crowds is, is generally wrong. Uh, you know, if you, the Malcolm Gladwell wisdom of crowds um, Huge, book, the, yeah. And it's, it's always, there's a very specific thesis that it has, which I believe is true, and there's a way the term always gets misused. The specific thesis is that the wisdom of crowds works if everybody in the crowd is thinking independently for themselves. So if we have a mar jar of marbles and everybody guesses how many there are, then somehow the collective judgment ends up being better than most individuals' judgments. But, um, but if you have a, um, if you have a, uh, uh, but if you have sort of the most more common way the wisdom of crowd works is through this sort of um, hyper mob like right. behavior, where I think you get um, a lot of irrationalities. You get the wisdom of crowds becomes the madness of crowds. It becomes uh, you know a bubble in finance or you know something worse in politics uh, when it goes when it goes very wrong. Um, they've done these studies of, um, at Harvard Business School, which I often think of as consisting of the opposite of Asperger-like people. So they are people with, uh, who are extremely socialized, uh, extremely extroverted, um, have very, relatively few convictions of their own. And you but put good, them- But good work habits. Right? Good work habits. <laughs> and you put them in a, a two-year hothouse environment in which they spend two years talking to one another, trying to figure out what to do, which um, leads to this very dysfunctional wisdom of crowds dynamic where you will simply, um, um, because none of the other people actually have thought about it for themselves and have any independent ideas. And they've done studies on this where systematically the largest cohort at Harvard Business School um, goes into always the wrong thing. So, you know, 1990, they all wanted to work for Michael Milken, sort of one or two years before he went to jail. Um, you know, they were never that interested in tech except for, you know, 99, 2000 when they descended on Silicon Valley en masse and timed the end of the dot-com bubble perfectly. And and on and on. So there there is something about this that's uh, that's uh, that's very tricky. Where 
you know, uh, probably a lot of innovation, uh, creative thinking, um, doing things that matter generally, uh, depends on not being so beholden to the people you're immediately around. Right. Even though you get feedback, and the feedback's helpful, there, there are these cases where it can go very wrong. And I suppose it's most helpful, don't you think, in, I would think, in a static situation. If you're dealing with a static universe, X number of people, X number of things you can do, then, you know, in a way, getting the most feedback suits you best to deal with this situation, I suppose. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you what kind of, what happens when there's a breakthrough in innovation or, or some disruptive event, right? And yeah, I mean, it, it depends to some extent on what, what your priors are. So if we, if, like my prior is that uh, there's a lot more innovation that could happen. Right. And so if the feedback mostly is of the form of anti-theories, can't do that, that's too bold, that doesn't quite make sense. Um, in a world where a lot of innovation is still possible, um, right. this sort of horizontal feedback probably has a very bad dampening effect. Um, if we're in a world where, in fact, everything's been discovered, everything big has been discovered, then uh, this sort of feedback right. would, um, would uh, stop people from wasting their lives on some sort of quixotic quest of one sort or another. So, so it does depend some on what, what, your, what your priors are. But, uh, but if, I, if I had to make a judgment on it, I think, uh, you know, I think we are in a world where these feedback mechanisms have gotten far too powerful, where um, uh, people are too easily swept up by these, these mob dynamics. I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly uh, not going to go on your TV show and blame this on, on the internet in any way. Uh, but um, but you, know, you, have to, you have to ask whether there are ways some of these technologies have um, have you know maybe even exacerbated some tendencies that were already there in our society? Um, you know the phenomenon of political correctness, sort of many different ways to to describe it, but but certainly one is just that uh, you have these you know incredibly powerful negative feedback effects that uh, get brought to bear and um, and have this you know very inhibiting character and doesn't I don't think it actually results in things being far more generative than they otherwise would be. It's like it, it cuts off a lot of lines of inquiry, um, but I don't think that means that it opens up that many more. And final question just on this topic, which is very interesting, I, I think. Um, it seems to me that conservatives and libertarians, and we're both pretty sympathetic, I think, to those points of view. Um, you know, Hayek, one of the great uh, libertarian heroes, and I mean, justly so, and a great economist. The fatal conceit, you know, you can't have central planning, which I think has been a very useful critique of big government, nanny state, liberal, welfare state liberalism. Probably, don't you think it's had the effect, just listening to you and thinking about this, of on the other hand, it's, it's sort of conservatives have bought into a very probabilistic, or maybe that's not quite the right mm -hmm. word, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, such a hostility to planning, such a hostility to to human conceit that they've almost that almost spills over into a kind of fatalism about human innovation yes. or, or yes. agency almost. You yes. know? Yes. So I think I think that is. No, I think there is sort of a very strange way that some of these these um, ideas developed, and, and certainly in the area of economics, 19th century, sort of pre-Austrian classical economics, uh, the thought was that you could still measure things objectively. So, um, you know, how many pounds of steel is this factory producing? Um, how many tons of steel is this factory producing? How many, you know, uh, cars per hour are the workers producing this assembly line? And, um, and there was that sort of a intuition about objective, uh, objective value. And there's been the shift towards um, towards uh, making things more subjective when it all becomes sort of unmeasurable or there are too many variables to measure. Right. And, and I think that was, you know, in some ways was started by Austrian economics. And I think now at this point, it really permeates all of it. It's not just 
the right, it's also, you know, the Obama administration wouldn't say that, uh, that they can have um, strong substantive ideas of what to do. They can improve processes, right. but, uh, but uh, uh, they would not, never actually think that you could actually uh, build a very specific thing in, 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 a, in a, a pre-planned way. They don't even believe in that anymore. Right. Um, they believe so, in nudging, right? Isn't um, that the term that's... Yes, yeah, the, the cast Which is a very revealing thing when you think about yes. it. It's such a limited aspiration for... And it's again, it's, it's again feedback from things that are already working and we improve right. them a little bit. So it's all, it's all, um, you know, it's all, uh, you know, we're all just going to climb up, um, go up uh, the up gradient and we may get stuck on a low-lying hill, you know. We have to, sometimes you have to step back and wonder, you know, where in the world do we find ourselves and we just simply go uphill. Do we... Um, do we end up on a low hill, or do we really end up on Mount Everest? Uh, you know, and uh, and we have all these hill climbing theories. We have no sort of a valley crossing, mountain climbing theories, and we need we need some 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 more of, of, of those kinds of of those kinds of things. But um, but yeah, I think the I think the shift towards towards a subjective, you know, subjective ways of measuring economics, it then ultimately leads to the, this this way in which we can't even coherently talk about uh, progress. So are we are we actually progressing as a society? Um, and then the answer becomes it's just impossible to know. You can't tell. Right. It's just different. There are all these things that are somewhat different, and maybe maybe you're living in a much smaller apartment in uh, New York City than your parents or grandparents lived, but you have an iPhone with a really smooth, flat surface, and so the hedonic benefit from that. How do you trade that off versus the um, apartment that's a quarter right. the size of that of your grandparents? And um, and so I, I think it's uh, I think there are I think it's hard to know how to think about these things, but I, I I do worry that the the stress on these sort of subjective hedonic economic measures are are excuses we're telling ourselves to hide uh, the stagnation or even decline from ourselves. Speaking of progress, um, one of the ways people hope for progress obviously is computers and more broadly uh, artificial well not broadly but artificial intelligence I guess in particular mm -hmm. has been a focus recently, but. Uh, you've given this a lot of thought and are pretty closely involved in a lot of these efforts or watched them closely and invest in some, I'm sure. What what do you think? I mean, are we, is, are we at some tipping point? Are we going to, is the world 20 years from now going to look that different in terms of what machines can and can't do? Well, it's um, it's very hard to say. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I've sort of many somewhat conflicting thoughts on this. I don't necessarily come down very strongly on one, one side or the other of these debates. I, I would say... Uh, that uh, certainly computers generally have been an area where there's been a lot of progress. So it's it's maybe not unreasonable to, to at least ask the question, how much more progress could there be? How many um, ways could AI um, happen? Uh, but you know, one of the on the other hand, one of the things I, I don't particularly like uh, about um, artificial intelligence is that it has become such a buzzword. I think these buzzwords often always um, obscure uh, more than they illuminate. Uh, and you know, one of the ways to see that it's a buzzword is to see how ambiguous it is. Um, artificial intelligence can mean uh, both the next computing, um, the last computing that humans will ever build, hmm. and everything in between. And so it has this sort of rather elastic meaning. Um, when artificial intelligence means the next set of computers, uh, it sort of pushes the conversation in, uh, you know, somewhat more automation, replacing certain uh, low-skill or medium-skill uh, kinds of activities people are doing. Uh, when you talk about it as the last computing device where it's, uh, you're building a mind that sort of can outthink and outwit um, any human being, you end up with uh, you know, these very 
scary, uh, somewhat political questions. Is it going to be friendly? Is it dangerous? Right. And if something like that could be developed, maybe it would be on par with um, extraterrestrials landing on this planet, where, where I think the first question would not be about, you know, what would this do to the unemployment rate? But the first question is, you know, are they friendly or not? Or is it, it's, the first questions would be political. Um, uh, if one, um, so I think that's sort of a, a general, a general framework. I would say that uh, that uh, certainly um, the uh, the sort of bullish AI consensus that exists is that we're making progress very quickly. Um, there are no um, deep reasons why um, um, uh, computers couldn't do everything better than uh, than what what humans do, and this may indeed happen, you know, in the next uh, in the next few decades. And that this would, of course, be an extraordinarily uh, important and transformative. Uh, set of changes, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly open to all these perspectives, but I also wonder whether there's certainly parts of this that one could could question. And uh, if you if you had to be a little bit more critical of it, uh, the, the sort of the two uh, points of criticism would be uh, to first start with the history, where people have been in some ways too optimistic about AI for for quite some time. So, hmm. in 1970, there were people who said you'd get um, computers to understand language and everything humans could do within a decade. Same thing would have been said in 1980. And so, you know, we've, we've been here before, and so there's been a history where this has turned out to be uh, be more difficult than um, than people would have thought. There was, um, and then of course, uh, there always is this, there's always a sense of whether, whether it's maybe just a particular moment in time where um, uh, at the peak of a technology cycle, um, the only thing we can worry about is technology that's so good that it, it it's too fast and it changes right. things too too radically. There was a in um, a spring of 2000. There was this uh, essay that got a huge uh, readership in Silicon Valley by Bill Joy, one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. It was uh, the future does not need us. Sort of how runaway technology would get rid of people, and um, and so in, in I retrospect, I remember that well. But that's already 15 years, um, years yeah, ago. But, but in retro, but uh, and as a sociocultural observation, as a psychosocial observation, in uh, spring of 2000. Uh, what we should have worried about was not right. whether the technology was uh, going to work so well that it, it would be this runaway progress, but the real question was, was it working at all? Were the business models working? Um, and it turned out that uh, a lot of things didn't work that well, and, uh, and we had sort of a, you know, a period when people went back to banking and back to consulting from, from Silicon Valley. The B2C, B2B didn't mean business to consumer and uh, mm. business to business meant back to consulting, back to banking. Um, and so, so anyway, so I, I do wonder whether the, the sort of mini AI bubble that we've seen in the last uh, few years is maybe symptomatic that we're at some, again, some local right. peak in optimism about how much Silicon Valley is doing, can do, um, all, all these sorts of things. Um, I, think, um, I think one way, um, um, one aspect of it that I, uh, that I think is, is, is somewhat disturbing is, is certainly that, uh, that um, there's this sort of probabilistic thinking that again uh, creeps into the AI issue as well. So, um, if you meet someone in Silicon Valley who um, who uh, is, believes that um, AI is possible, it's happening soon, and it's potentially dangerous, let's say those these are three very widely held beliefs. Um, the uh, the the fourth thing that you can always push back on them. You don't want to question those three beliefs, but the fourth one that's a very powerful one to question back is well, um, you have no idea of how to build one that's safe, and you couldn't build one that's safe. And the way you've defined the problem, that you're going to build a superior mind that will be able to outthink you, um, you won't be able to, um, to build it in a way that's, uh, 
that's safe. Um, one of my colleagues was uh, sort of talking to one of the top AI researchers and uh, you know, sort of pushed him on this, and it was basically, uh, Professor, uh, you know, you obviously don't believe any of your theories about um, about AI because if you did, you wouldn't be publishing any of it on the internet because mm. when the AI emerges, it will read about it on the internet and it will know to hide mm. and to not make you aware of how powerful it really has become. So, so there's something right. akin to that that's implicit in all of this, where um, if it's if it's if the sort of the optimistic case about technological possibility is true. Uh, there's a sense of um, helplessness in terms of what people can actually do about it. And so it's very much linked to this, this rather dystopian view, and this is it's reflected in the Hollywood movies, where I, I cannot think of a single movie from Hollywood about AI that doesn't have a dark and rather right. disturbing under, undercurrent uh, to it. Uh, and, so, and so again, I think it's this sort of probabilistic reasoning that things are sort of, technologies are out of our control, there's no human agency, we can't actually know what we're doing, that, uh, Gives it this very strange quality, and of course, um, and of course, there is there is a sense in which uh, um, you know the term AI simply means uh, some, that human intelligence isn't up to the task, and so uh, so one way of one other way of interpreting the um, the AI boom is that uh, you know on the, the the surface it is about extreme optimism about the p potentialities in computer technology, and then beneath the surface it simultaneously is perhaps uh, a great deal of pessimism around um, around the possibilities and other technologies that will be developed by humans, and a deep pessimism about the possibilities for what humans can do. And so, it's sort of a you know, man with a hammer sees a nail everywhere. So, uh, one interpretation I have of the of the AI uh, uh, bubble is that it, again, in a, in a strange way, is symptomatic of the of the technology uh, stagnation thesis. Now that seems to fit with the notion that we're developed societies and there's not much more we can do on our own. Yes. So then this yes. deus ex machina kind of literally is going to come yes. in and like do what? I don't know, but you know. Yeah, so like we're waiting for, it's like waiting for Godot, waiting, for, waiting for this AI to, to save us from, from all these things and then don't know whether it'll be friendly or not. So it has this very, again, has this very strangely um, passive aspect where where uh, it's, it's somehow there's not enough room for human agency to my to my liking. Now certainly one one sort of somewhat more basic point that I, I always try to make is that uh, um, it, it's not at all obvious why the question about let's say near-term AI, so not the way futuristic stuff but the you know the next generation or the generation after that, why it should be seen as such an adversarial dynamic and you know that, that we're always talking about computers as substitutes for humans, and yet the reality is they are they are very different. Um, they are, uh, um, you know, computers are able to do things in this incredible brute force way. Uh, humans are sometimes able to do things uh, far more effectively, um, and yet uh, there's sort of ways in which our minds are probably um, much simpler than, um, than than we think. Uh, you know, it's 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 probably wrong to think of a human mind as having hundreds of billions of neurons because um, and that somehow codes for hundreds of billions of things in our mind. You know, you're you're a really smart person if you have twenty thousand vocabulary words, and um, and so um, I think there is something uh, about computers and humans where they're deeply different, and I, I wonder whether the the focus on AI has somehow obscured uh, obscured these differences, and so the the mystery, in some ways, is why why have we actually not built AI? Right. And um, and you know the conventional explanation in Silicon Valley is we have not built it because human minds are so complicated. If you have hundreds of billions of neurons, you'd need to have to have 
a computer with hardware of the type we haven't quite developed yet, and, um, and sort of it's just a matter of time and we'll, we'll get there. Um, but you can make the same argument. You could say this cup here has, uh, you know, close to Avogadro's number of molecules or atoms in it and could never be modeled by a computer. But you don't actually need to model every atom. You can just model the basic structure. And in a similar way, um, if there is such a reductionist theory of the mind were possible, um, it could perhaps have been already designed on 1970s or 1980s type type hardware. So, so I think there are some uh, very mysterious questions like this that have, have not been um, fully thought through. My, my guess is that it's possible that there are just these, these, these really big differences um, and that there are, and there's a separate question whether you can brute force a simulation of a human mind um, and there probably are ways you can do it and, and then there's some limits to that, but, uh, but, but they're naturally complementary because they're so different. The, 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 we normally need to be afraid of uh, people who are just like us because those are the people we're competing against. You know, um, you know, it's it's if you're, you know, you need to be. Globalization is scary because it means that you have sort of very underpaid people who aren't that different from us right. in other countries competing with people in the U.S. and Western Europe. Um, you know, the computers are not; they're complementary. They're not; they're not really competing. They, they would be scary if we had a super futuristic version where we had a robot that looked just like you, Bill Crystal. And it, we didn't have to pay it any money in any context, and, and you'd be, you'd be rightly alarmed yeah, by I that. Alarmed. And this is, and this is, this so is, this many is, other people too. And, this, and this, yeah. this is the common sense intuition why people are scared of cloning. You know, it's, right. it's, it's a sort of bioethics cut on cloning, but the common sense reason is that if you had sort of hundred clones of yourself, they'd undercut your, they'd be competing with you, and you're competing, you're always competing with people who are like you, and, uh, and so. Um, so to the extent computers are really different, that's, I think, much more of a positive than a negative. And when you say the human mind is simple, you're, make, you're saying not that it's easy to replicate, but the opposite, that there's something mysteriously simple about it so that brute force doesn't replicate at least some of the things that it can do. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah my, 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 my view is that it's, it's mysteriously simple. Right. Uh, and it seems to be able to do very powerful things with relatively few components. So right. maybe, maybe there is some relatively simple algorithm that, that, uh, that could uh, replicate it, it, but it's strange that we haven't found that. Um, um, and, um, but it's, pro it's perhaps not a problem of hardware, which is the, the, which standard is the naive view, standard yeah. view that we just need more hardware and you'll, you'll get it to work. Yeah, when, when the computer beat Gary Kasparov and chess, when was it, 97 maybe, something yes. like that, uh, Charles Krauthammer, who knows a lot about chess and knows a lot about, fair amount about science too, wrote a cover story for us, which we had titled, Be Scared, Be, Be Very Scared. And you know, it's an interesting reflection. Uh, I haven't got back and looked at it in a while, but I would say 20 years later, it doesn't feel that scary. I mean, clearly mm -hmm. at a game like chess with a set number of pieces and a board and rules, mm -hmm. you know, the brute force, so to speak, can just at some point surpass even the greatest player. But I don't, most of life isn't like that, I think. And one doesn't have the sense that computers are defeating humans in the way that one might have thought 20 years ago would now move from chess to other parts of life. Or maybe I'm wrong about that, but it does, yeah, it's, you know. It's, I think it's an open question. So I think it's, it's happened certainly less quickly than people would have predicted right. at various points. Uh, you know, certainly you have uh, day trading, you have all these sort of great right. trading algorithms where the computers are maybe doing two-thirds of the stock trading on the stock market. Or you have, um, you have certain, certain places where these things happen. 
On the other hand, things like uh, language translation still feel extremely far away from that. And if anything, the way Google has improved its, its uh, language translator is to find phrases in books and then see how the humans translated those books. And so it sort of has found efficient ways to leverage off of human translators. Uh, and it's not actually any kind of semantic understanding on the level of the computer of what's actually the meaning of the words. And hmm. so uh, that kind of a thing still seems, uh, seems very far away. And day trading is, in a way, I don't know that much about it, but it seems like a good example because it's not stock picking. It's not, let right. alone venture capital investing, right. which to my knowledge, computers haven't. I mean, of course, yes, you I'm can use Yes, I'm hopeful that venture capital <laughs> is, uh, is extremely uh, far from being right. uh, replaced by computers. Yeah, the use of computers in those areas is, is to help people you know, process data yes. very quickly and do a lot of comparisons and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not. Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 the look, the, the, the more hopeful view that I still have is that uh, it is it is likely to be just a continuation of the of what's been happening since the industrial revolution, where um, mechanization, automation, um, free people up from certain kinds of repetitive tasks and free people up to do other things, uh, and then. It, it can be scary if we're living in a society where there are not enough other opportunities, where there's right. not enough growth, where there are problems like that. But uh, in and of itself, uh, freeing people up from the drudgery of repetitive tasks is, is probably a good thing. Yeah, and the transition can be very unpleasant. And of course, one reads about it in the history books. I was having this conversation with someone recently. You know, well, people went from agriculture, mm -hmm. from rural areas to the cities, and and. You know, but they, they got through it, and London was a mess, and everyone writes, you, know, you read early accounts mm -hmm. of early, in, you know, Blake and the coal mines and early mm -hmm. industrial London and, and other, more or less London, maybe other industrial towns in, in, in England, and it's terrible, but, you know, they get through the problem and everyone ends up well, well off. But, of course, the getting through takes 20 yes. or 40 years yes. and includes all kinds of bad things happening and instability, and maybe we're in such a moment here, you could argue, with all the anxieties about people losing jobs. But there's also so much nostalgia, don't you think? I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm sorry, it is, if you are a coal miner and you're out of work at age 52, it's very tough and it's hard to adjust and you have mm -hmm. to move or you're, mm -hmm. you'll never maybe have quite as well paying a job. And it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, you know, that's just part of social progress. That's not the right, that's not a very palatable thing to say. On the other hand, it one shouldn't be too nostalgic that it was a great thing that we had tens of, you had millions of people in coal mines. That was not right. healthy, you know. Right. <laughs> or the assembly right. line, all the nostalgia now. Trump's getting the votes of, quote, the white working class, the people who were once working in steel mills, and that was great, great or on assembly lines. And it was, it seems really? to be an awful lot of literature was written in the 50s and 60s and 70s about how assembly lines were dehumanizing and cog right. in a machine right. and, you know, not a great, you know, not, one would want it to get beyond that, right? Right. And, per and perhaps if we didn't want Chinese manufacturing to become as powerful, we needed to automate the assembly lines even faster than we did in the U.S. Or, right. if, any if anything, we didn't mechanize quickly enough in some of these industries. I think uh, the sense of nostalgia that we have is, is a sense of uh, that there is a lot that we're losing. And, uh, and the, the, the dilemma is that um, the things that we're losing are very obvious. And then um, on the other end, right. the other end of the tunnel, there are many things that we will gain. And we have every reason to think the things we will gain are much greater than the things that we are losing. But uh, it's, it's sort of obvious what we're losing. It's not at all obvious right. what we're going to gain on, on the other end. And I think that would have been certainly true of you know, the early 19th century when we were in the throes of the, the first industrial revolution. Uh, and there certainly are aspects of it that are that are like that today, um, but you know my again my 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 worry with all these things is is if anything it's there's not enough happening. 
You know, it's, it's, if, you sort of st if you take the biggest innovation that people are talking about now, it's, it's self-driving cars. It's yeah, it's funny. Of, I was just going to ask so you about that. So let's talk about that. That's the stereotypical. Is that really so big a deal? And, you know, if, In a way, I it, mean, right. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think there are one or two million people who are employed as, as drivers. That's like maybe one and a half, two percent of the workforce, maybe something in that in that ballpark. Um, maybe it would increase efficiencies because you could get some work done in the car while you're driving to the office. So there would be, you know, maybe 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 it could lead to five percent increase in GDP in the whole economy. Maybe I'm underestimating it somehow, but it, so I think I think it would be a significant change, but it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily take double our GDP or anything remotely like that. And and so the fact that that's sort of the the most transformational change we can imagine is um, is again perhaps you know is, is to my liking to my way of thinking strangely unambitious. Yeah, well, you you famously like said you know they told us we'd have what was the what was your famous joke? Uh, uh, they promised us flying cars and all we got right. was 140 characters. So this is so now we're getting self-driving cars. It's better than 140 characters and it's it's but self-driving. But really, when you think about it, I hadn't really thought about it this way. The self-driving cars. There's still the cars going on the same roads and the same traffic. I mean, maybe it's a little less traffic because you know there are fewer. Maybe, maybe you uh, maybe they can park the, themselves. So you don't need they, to look at You don't have parking. to keep one. Not everyone will have to have a car. You'll just tell yes. the self. You'll call like Uber. The self-driving car will come get you. So there's less congestion a little bit because there aren't. But yes, still, I think, I think the theory. But it's not flying cars. I mean, that is in a way the which would have been a, yeah. a quantum leap. In, so in, to speak. in theory, it could help congestion a lot. Right. In theory, it could um, take a lot of pressure off of. Parking spaces and, right. and, and and things like that, um, and then at the at the same time, the fact that this is this is the um, technology that's iconically right. the most radical that we can sort of concretely describe. Um, you know, it's it's more than Twitter, but it it's not it's not quite not, not vacation trips on the moon. Not to or something criticize like Twitter, you know, but right. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's a good it's a good it's a very good company. Yeah. It's yeah. No, I just like Twitter yes. for tweeting. But no, I, I also agree there. It's that this is what it's come to in a way. The, there were huge breakthroughs, obviously, real breakthroughs. Email, I find all that stuff is pretty amazing. I mean, Google it would be, be self-driving car would be, I would say, almost as big as the car itself. But I would still say that the original invention of the car was bigger than the self-driving oh, car. Yeah, to, again, if so. you sort of had to give the rough qualitative. Yeah, from horse and buggy to car is a bigger That seems like a bigger change. people being able to, in, you know, in, in lessening distance, I think, that a car or a self-driving car certainly doesn't lessen distance at all. It, of course, makes it easier, you know. But it is sort of like Uber replacing. I don't know. It, yeah. Not if it's funny. I was thinking the exact same thing myself, but not, not quite in this context. That it is the iconic next breakthrough. But it's not that big a breakthrough, you know. Um, yeah. But, but so there are... Um, and then, you know, there are... There are uh, you know, and then there are, of course, quite, you know, even a company like Uber where you have um, this... Uh, this 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 major innovation. I I often wonder whether it's it's more symptomatic of of the failure of certain political structures. So uh, right. the the vision in the 50s and 60s was that you'd build very high speed uh, transport systems, which um, you know in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live were basically vetoed by local uh, zoning ordinances. And and so it's sort of like this very second best um, solution because you couldn't build. The much faster kinds of things that uh, that people thought were were natural in the 50s or or 60s uh, to to develop, and so so it, again, it's a it's sort of a it's a it's a compensating device for um, for sort of the dysfunction of our cities, where there's not enough parking, so you don't want to drive your own car, right. you can never find a parking space, 
um, it's, uh, it's, it sort of ends up being, um, and then the public transportation systems don't work. Cabs so, are limited, yeah. medallions, so, all these, so there's all no market sort of, system for taxis. All these things that, have, that are dysfunctional, and then we have this innovation to sort of ameliorate the dysfunction. But, uh, but if the political systems worked better in our cities, uh, this, would be, uh, this would be sort of a, we, we might be doing some very, very different kinds of things. So you're more worried still about the, the lack of real technological breakthroughs, if I can put it that way, than this notion that we're on the cusp of all kinds of technologies which will be dangerous to us and, and out of our control. Far more worried about uh, um, the lack of good technologies than the danger of evil. So it's, it's, I, I feel as a venture capitalist, I see all these you know, bad forms of bad technology, bad science, where it's, it's things that just don't work. You know, the, the, the cool sounding things. The general problem with them is not that they're ethically problematic, it's that they just don't work. And then, um, and then, uh, and then or the things that do work are often on a scale that's, uh, that's incredibly modest. Uh, you know, if you, there's often a way in which humor is used to sort of hide uh, disturbing truths from ourselves. And, and you know, if people made fun of technology in the early 20th century, the humor was to disguise how scary it was, how much it had, it had changed, right. how, how drastic it was. And today, um, it's like you know, people throwing virtual cats at one another on the internet or something like that. The humor, we make fun of technology. It's to hide from ourselves the disturbing uh, fact of how trivial it is and how small, uh, how small it is. So um, you know, people are still worried about what's going on, but I think it has, a, it has a very different feel from what it did 100 years ago. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Any last word of relative optimism, however? Um, I mean, it is striking just we're here actually having this conversation. We're about to go to a more academic conference on the mastery of nature, sort of modern philosophy, and it's, its attempt to conquer nature, and uh, in a way, the amazing success. But in a way, but so much attention has been given to the downside of that, and the you know, was it was it a bad idea in the first place, or is it a you know, if we now is it created as much harm as good, is out of control, as we were saying earlier. But in a way, you're taking a, a very interesting and sort of contrarian view that maybe the problem is that we need to recapture a little of that early verve of the attempt to conquer nature for the relief of man's estate or whatever. Yes. I, mean. I don't think we've lost it altogether, right? And so it's, it's always, there's always, uh, there is, you know, there, there is, and there's always a way in which um, the, you know, the post-2008 malaise, you know, the silver lining to this is that there is a sense that we need to do new things. We can't just right. keep going uh, the way uh, things were, and there was a complacency that you could have had 10 years ago that I think uh, you no longer quite can have today. People are far more open to this idea that perhaps there's been um, um, not as much technological. Do you find that since you, I, when I, did you first introduce the idea? It was you know, about I started, we had a six, I, seven started year, I, I, I wrote about it first in 2011. I was starting to talk about it three, four years earlier. Right. And, um, and certainly even in 2011, um, people uh, thought this was very crazy. And at this point, even in, even in Silicon Valley, there are people who sort of said, "Yeah, I've thought about it some more, and I think I think there's actually, you know, um, there's a lot uh, a lot to this." So, uh, so it's uh, there's definitely there's more of an openness to to this uh, notion, and maybe that's the the first step in um, in uh, in getting out of it. You know, you have to realize that we've been wandering in a desert for 40 or more years now, and uh, and not in an enchanted forest, and that's that's how we find the first step to get out of it. Yeah, 40 years is a good time for to end the wandering into the desert, I would, I would, I would say. I would, yeah, I think it's a little over 40, but uh, <laughs> yeah, right. it's time to leave. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, have this conversation, uh, and thank you for joining us for Conversations.